I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Over 40% of American adults are obese. Will new drugs like Ozempic, Wegovy, or Manjaro help them lose weight? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Few medicines in modern times have captured the imagination of Americans like the GLP-1 agonists. People who have struggled for decades are reporting weight loss. Today on The People's Pharmacy, part one of a two-part series about the benefits and risks of medications like Wegovy. Two medical experts will offer their differing perspectives on the causes and treatment of obesity. Today, our guest is the president-elect of the Obesity Society. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, the lowdown on new medicines for treating obesity. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, scientists keep discovering new insights into how COVID-19 creates long-lasting health problems. Why, for example, do people have an increased risk for cardiovascular complications up to a year after acute infection? Researchers writing in Nature Cardiovascular Research reveal a new discovery. They found the SARS-CoV-2 virus directly infecting immune system cells called macrophages in the walls of coronary blood vessels. This leads to a persistent inflammatory reaction within arterial plaque. That, in turn, contributes to heart attacks and strokes. Another important discovery this week involves the relationship between serotonin levels and long COVID. The investigators found persistent viral remnants in the digestive tract. These appear to contribute to inflammation and a reduction in serotonin levels throughout the body. Serotonin is crucial for brain function, but 90% of this neurotransmitter is actually made within the digestive tract. Inflammation in response to SARS-CoV-2 viral debris apparently interferes with the production of serotonin. This may, in part, account for some of the neurological symptoms of long COVID, including brain fog and cognitive dysfunction. You've no doubt heard about forever chemicals, per- and polyfluoroalkyl compounds. They've been used in nonstick pots and pans, food packaging, stain-resistant carpets and fabrics, as well as water-repellent shoes and outerwear. PFAS chemicals are found in air, soil, and drinking water. Because they don't break down easily, they will be in our environment and in us for decades. Potential health effects of PFAS compounds include changes in liver function, increased cholesterol levels, elevations in blood pressure, and reduced fertility. A new study suggests that forever chemicals may also increase the risk for thyroid cancer. This malignancy has been on the rise worldwide. Researchers suspect that exposure to PFAS chemicals may be partly to blame. In the new investigation, scientists analyzed blood samples from patients with and without thyroid cancer. Those with higher levels of PFAS in their bodies showed a 56% increased risk of thyroid cancer diagnosis as the levels of PFOS doubled. The authors call for large-scale prospective studies to better understand the relationship between forever chemicals and thyroid cancer. How reliable are studies of medicines used to treat psychiatric conditions such as anxiety or depression? An analysis of studies looking at antidepressant use and suicide found that those articles whose authors had financial conflicts of interest were far less likely to report suicides associated with antidepressant use. The investigators suggest that selective publication of favorable results in psychiatric journals helps explain the discrepancy. Another study, published in the journal Psychological Medicine, reports that publication bias may have led to overestimation of the benefits of the anti-anxiety medicine Alprazolam. This benzodiazepine is better known by its brand name, Xanax. The authors reviewed both published and unpublished data from randomized controlled trials. Five trials were conducted, but only three were published. 
More striking, only one of the five showed strong benefit for extended-release alprazolam against anxiety. The authors conclude, Alprazolam XR may be less effective than the published literature would suggest. They recommend that all data submitted to the FDA should be available for public review, including negative studies. Parkinson disease remains a devastating condition that impairs people's ability to control their movements. The drugs that are prescribed have not changed in decades. A new study suggests that people who practice Tai Chi, a Chinese martial art characterized by slow movements and balance, can slow the progression of this neurological condition. Prior research has suggested the value of high-intensity exercise, such as boxing or cycling, for people with Parkinson's disease. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The most popular and lucrative new medicines on the market are being used to help people lose weight. Obesity now impacts more than two out of every five adults. That's why medications like Wegovy, Ozempic, and Mounjaro have become so successful. They're also highly controversial. Originally developed to treat type 2 diabetes, which is often associated with excess weight, these drugs are now in great demand and short supply. What are the pros and cons of these medicines? They're classified as glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1 agonists. This is the first of a two-part series here on The People's Pharmacy. Next week, we'll be talking with Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Neurology at the University of California at San Francisco. He's a neuroendocrinologist who's treated childhood obesity and diabetes for many years. Today, though, we are talking with Dr. Jamie Ard. He is a professor of epidemiology and prevention at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He's also a clinical researcher focused on studying strategies to treat obesity and type 2 diabetes in adults. Dr. Art also co-directs the Wake Forest Baptist Weight Management Center, where he oversees the medical weight management programs. He's the Vice Dean for Clinical Research at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. Dr. Ard is the President-Elect of the Obesity Society and will be President in 2024. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Jamie Ard. Oh, thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Dr. Ard, we keep hearing that over 40% of Americans are now considered obese. And obesity has tripled since 1975. Why? What happened? What's gone wrong? Well, I, I think this is a really important question because when we think about obesity, especially as a chronic disease, so we, so we tend to frame it that way and we say people with obesity, um, because they have a chronic disease, that is really a function of not being able to deal with the environment that we're in and a lack of consistent regulation of how our bodies manage the energy that we see in our food environment, how we're not able to consistently really uh, maintain a normal weight in the face of what we consider an overwhelming um, obesogenic environment, meaning we have to work really hard in order to stay at a normal weight in the current state. The current state really sort of pushes us towards excess weight gain, even if we're not thinking about it intentionally or trying it. Most of my patients, um, actually all of my patients would come in and say, I did not try to gain the weight that I've gained. I looked up and it happened, um, or there were things that happened, and I associate those events in my life with some type of dysregulation or disruption in my ability to be able to balance energy intake and energy expenditure. 
And a lot of that is happening outside of our volitional control, which is part of the new understanding of how we think about obesity. It's not just the fact that someone sat down and ate more food than they wanted to or intended to, but it's really a fact that a lot of us are exposed to this environment in ways that are beyond our control. And in response to that environment, our brains are trying to help us navigate and regulate energy balance. And sometimes we're doing that successfully and sometimes we're not. So, Dr. Art, if I understand what you're saying correctly, the old idea that you just have to eat less and exercise more, that's not enough. What is it about our environment that's causing us problems? Well, yes, you are understanding that correctly. And I think the issues within our environment that lead to the propensity, the likelihood that we gain weight over time include changes in our food supply. So we have different types of foods. We have foods that are much more calorically dense. And that means that you can get a lot of calories in a small package. And we lose this relationship between the quantity of what we eat, the amount, the physical amount, and the amount of calories that are consumed. We can get a lot of calories in a small package. So I think that's one part of it. I think in the lives that we lead, our lifestyles are not ideal for metabolic health. So I talked to a patient yesterday who works two jobs to make ends meet, and she probably sleeps an average of four to five hours per night um, interrupted. And so that's hard to do. Um, It's hard to have a sleep schedule like that and still maintain good metabolic health. You start to compile all of these different things um, within our environment that push towards weight gain, including things like shift working, the mechanization of our society. We don't have obligations to be physically active the way we used to be. All of these things in are are sort of small insults, if you will, at any one individual level, but collectively and over time, they aggregate to to lead to the shift in the population that you see. This People's Pharmacy podcast is made possible in part by lab-tested supplements. Supplement quality is a big concern of ours and probably yours as well. Most of the time when we're buying supplements, we consumers don't have a good way of judging whether they meet the standards of purity and potency we expect. We think that lab-tested supplements have a clever answer to that question. Each bottle has a QR code right on the label. When you check it with your phone, it takes you to a third-party certificate of analysis for that supplement. Each lot is analyzed independently by an ISO-certified laboratory to make sure it contains exactly what it should and nothing that it shouldn't. What shouldn't it contain, Terry? It should not contain cadmium, lead, arsenic, or mercury. But sometimes supplements are contaminated with these heavy metals. By checking the certificate of analysis, you can see that you're not getting unwanted toxins in your supplement. When you visit labtestedsupplements.com, you'll find detailed information about NMN, PQQ, and every other product they offer. That website address is labtestedsupplements.com. And when you go to that website, make sure to enter the discount code PHARMACY5 at checkout for 5% off your first purchase. Once again, when you go to labtestedsupplements.com, enter the discount code PHARMACY and the number 5 to get 5% off your first purchase. Now, Dr. Ard, I think the old way of thinking was, you know, people just need to exercise more and eat less. But a headline in the Wall Street Journal recently said, No, it's biology versus willpower. So this idea of willpower in weight management, it it seems like that's going out the window 
and is being replaced by these new drugs, what are called the GLP-1 agonists. People have heard of Ozempic and Wegovy and now Monjaro. Is that changing the way we understand the problem of weight management? Yes, it is. I think what we are finally starting to be able to say is what patients have experienced as a feeling of lack of willpower, lack of consistency with implementing a particular dietary intervention or strategy, we actually can now start to point to some biological correlates or things that are explaining why a patient feels and behaves the way that they do. And it's not a simple, well, this problem is wrong in the biology, and then we fix that and then everything else falls into line. It really is a complex system that I was alluding to earlier. But I think we are getting smarter about understanding the interaction between what happens in our gut, the stomach, the intestines, the hormones that are related to um, food intake and how that interacts with our brain, which really is the master controller here and has a huge impact on uh, determining how we respond in the environment that we're in. Dr. Ard, I'm wondering which patients might benefit most from these uh, new medications, the GLP-1 agonists. You run a, a weight management program. I assume that you are now prescribing these drugs for some of your patients. Who gets the most benefit? Yes, we do We do run a, a program here at... Uh, Atrium Health, Wake Forest Baptist, and we prescribe these medications for our patients when we look at the potential impact that treatment can have on health outcomes. So we specialize in treating patients who have what I consider complicated obesity. This means that they have obesity and health-associated issues. Um, so it's not just excess weight, but weight that is excess weight that is contributing to health problems like diabetes, sleep apnea, hypertension, heart disease. And so we see the newer generation medications as being really effective for helping patients who want to get resolution or remission or better control of those complications of obesity by achieving double-digit weight loss. Uh, and, and what I mean by double-digit weight loss, if we think about our target weight loss goals uh, as a function of a percentage of your baseline weight. So if I start off at 200 pounds and I lose 5 to 10% of my weight, so that's 10 to 20 pounds, we know historically lots of evidence shows that that leads to health benefits like preventing diabetes uh, if someone has prediabetes or helping to improve blood pressure or high cholesterol levels. But if we start to push beyond that into the 10 to 15 and now 20% range, we're actually seeing even greater improvement in health outcomes. And that includes things like remission of type 2 diabetes. So actually saying that someone can control their blood sugar without medication or seeing resolution of fatty liver or seeing really significant decreases in sleep apnea. Those are the types of patients that we like to use these medications for because we see the health benefits that are associated with the larger volume weight loss. Dr. Ard, we hear that these medications like Ozempic and Wegovy and Monjaro are affecting satiety in part, kind of resetting the brain. So instead of eating the whole pizza, we eat one slice of pizza and that seems to do it. Is that one of the mechanisms? Yes, we think the effect on satiation is central. And that is one of the things that patients will notice most often and earliest in treatment is the impact of the GLP-1 on their ability to consume a certain volume of food. And people will also notice that they stay satisfied longer. So they're less likely to feel hungry between meals and defined snacks. You're listening to Dr. Jamie Ard, Professor of Epidemiology and Prevention at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He's also a clinical researcher focused on studying strategies to treat obesity and type 2 diabetes in adults.
Dr. Art is also the president-elect of the Obesity Society and will be president in 2024. After the break, we'll learn more about the pros and cons of GLP-1 agonists like Otsempic or Wegovy. What happens when people stop taking these medicines? Do people need to pay attention to what they eat and how much they exercise when they're taking these drugs? What are these medicines doing that seem so helpful? They've certainly captured the public imagination. Dr. Ard will tell us about a couple of patients who have benefited. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Cocoa Extract. Cocoflavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart and better memory. Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code PPOD15. Learn more at Cocovia and remember that discount code is PPOD15. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Coco Via Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory Plus is formulated with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, a level clinically proven to improve three different types of memory and support brain function. More information at cocovia.com. We're talking about some very popular medications being used to help people lose weight. For tens of millions of Americans, shedding pounds has been an almost impossible challenge. They lose a few pounds but then gain them back with interest. How have drugs like Wegovy, Ozempic, or Mounjaro changed the treatment of obesity? What are the pros and cons of these medications? We're talking with Dr. Jamie Ard. He is professor of epidemiology and prevention at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Dr. Ard also directs the Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Weight Management Center, where he oversees the medical weight management programs. He's the Vice Dean for Clinical Research at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. He is also the President-Elect of the Obesity Society and will be President in 2024. Dr. Ard, we've been talking about um, Drugs called GLP-1 agonists, but I think people would recognize their brand names a little bit better. We've got Wegovy, we've got Ozempic, we've got Monjaro. I am wondering if you can give us a, a quick rundown on the pros and the cons of these medicines, because we do understand that any medicine is going to have some potential side effects. Sure. So the pros, let's start there. I think the main benefits that people notice are that the process of losing weight is much easier. They feel less consumed by food. They feel more in control of food. Um, the sense of fullness, that signal is much stronger. So a lot of my patients would say it felt like a suggestion before maybe to stop eating. Now it, it's a very, very clear, emphatic, yeah, I'm done. So it, it really is a, a benefit in terms of helping people sort of reset how they interact with food from that perspective. I think the other benefit that we're starting to see in some of the newer data, newer trials, is that this is, you know, for example, the top line results, we don't have the full peer reviewed results of the cardiovascular outcome trial from semaglutide, but it showed that treating people with known heart disease had a led to a reduction of 20% in major adverse cardiovascular events. That's life-saving. That's what that means. So we're, we're starting to see the potential for 
treating obesity as being a primary way to help improve longevity, um, decrease adverse cardiovascular outcomes. Um, so more to come on that area. Now on the cons, I think the side effects of any drug are, are going to be important for people to understand. And these drugs certainly have a well-documented side effect profile that typically includes GI-related side effects. So by, by that, I mean related to the stomach and intestines and the gut. And so most commonly, people will experience nausea. So I tell patients, most of my patients will experience nausea, probably eight out of 10. It's usually mild and transient. And as we gradually increase the dose, um, people tend to be able to manage that that nausea and their body sort of gets accustomed to that. And so it's not a prolonged uh, day in, day out slog that people will have to deal with. I think the other uh, main side effects are related to uh, diarrhea or constipation. Some people will experience that. And again, that may be dose dependent, uh, but there are ways to mitigate all of these types of side effects. Some people just won't tolerate the medication and, and just won't be able to to take it. And that's okay. We have other uh, anti-obesity medications that can be useful in part of a treatment plan. I think the other big con for most people is cost in access to these medications. Uh, while they can be incredibly helpful, um, they're only helpful to the extent that people can get them. And we have a really significant challenge in a lot of instances in terms of being able to get people access to these medications. And so that's something that we are constantly working on in terms of trying to help improve access to care for obesity treatment at large, um, but in particular, um, some of these types of therapies that are now evolving and, and more effective. Dr. Ard, we hear another possible downside, and that is that when people stop taking these medications, the weight may come back. Yeah, so... I don't count that as a downside because I think of treatment of any chronic disease means that we're going to require long-term treatment. And we don't really have an expectation for any other disease that we treat that, well, we'll get your blood pressure to, let's say, 120 over 80, and then high five, and you can stop taking the medication the next day. We tend to think, well, if the treatment is working, and it has now helped you establish a new level of control of whatever that disease state is, that we're going to stay there and we're going to continue that treatment until we need to evolve that treatment because of time, age, other circumstances, et cetera. And so obesity is no different in that it is a chronic disease. It is relapsing in nature and we have to continue to evolve treatment over time. There will be people who might need multiple different types of treatments uh, over the course of time, either together or in succession. And that is just the nature of managing chronic disease. So I, I don't necessarily see it as a downside. I just think people have to be educated about understanding what it means to treat obesity as a chronic disease. Dr. Ard, are there lifestyle changes that people need to make even though they may be taking one of these medications to help them manage their weight, do they need to do other things as well? Yes, absolutely. So I think this is another important issue that a lot of people, as we have been really excited about the advances in therapy and the effectiveness, we, we don't lose sight of the fact that our goal isn't really to make it so that people don't eat and we just ignore their nutrition or we ignore other aspects of a healthy lifestyle like physical activity. So taking terzepatide or semaglutide doesn't make you more physically active. But if you lose a significant amount of weight, you lose 20% of your weight, being more physically active is less painful, right? So it's okay to think about staging treatment so we certainly don't have to um, have patients, quote unquote, fail a lifestyle intervention because it may be really challenging for someone who's got bad knees and bad back and has asthma um, to say they're going to be physically active in the way that you think they should be. 
but if they get started on a treatment plan and are able to lose 10% of their weight and then start to see, yeah, this is a little bit easier, then we can stage that uh, treatment process so that their physical activity and lifestyle changes evolve over time as they receive benefit from the treatment strategy. Dr. Ard, why do you think these medications have really captured the imagination, not just of patients, but of doctors? They seem to be um, far more popular than previous weight loss medicines. What are they doing that seems so helpful? Yeah, so you're right. These there's There's a lot of excitement about these medications. And some of that, I think, stems from the general sense that we're helping so many more people with achieving an adequate treatment response. But I think a lot of this has to do with the the symptom resolution, if you will, that happens when people are taking these medications. They have, as, as many of my patients have explained to me, the light bulb or the light switch moment where they start taking the medication and they just sort of wake up the next day and start to realize, like, I'm just not thinking about food nearly as often. The The amount of food that I used to consume, I just don't want to consume that anymore. And even some patients are noticing the types of foods, the things that used to appeal to me are not as appealing. And, and we think all of that is a function of the action of these medications, especially how it impacts the brain and areas in the brain um, that have these particular receptors. So this is part of what we think makes this really exciting and interesting is, is that it's so broadly effective for a lot of people. Are you seeing any differences between semaglutide and uh, terzepatide, for example? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting. There are some people who, we see that don't have a response to semaglutide at the highest dose that's available. And we will try terzepatide. And, and there's that light switch moment. I've got a couple of patients who fall into that category where, you know, we had a, a window of time where we could get the terzepatide for obesity treatment. These patients didn't have type 2 diabetes. And, and I should note that's off-label usage. But when we tried them on terzepatide, they had that light switch moment. And it was really fairly dramatic for both of those patients. And, and I think we're, we're still at a point where we don't know exactly why that may be, because both of those medications have the GLP-1 receptor activity. But as you know, the terzepatide has some additional activity at another receptor, and it may be that it's just a better GLP-1 agonist, and it works better on those receptors, or it's the combination of the effect uh, at the other receptors, the GIP receptors. So I think there's a lot more to still learn in terms of who is going to respond to what medication. It sounds as though doctors are still learning quite a bit, and I understand that you are uh, working on a document, presumably you have colleagues, to establish standards of care. What sorts of things are you and your colleagues considering? Yes, we are working on trying to build the standards of care for the practice of obesity medicine, and we're going to start with a focus on adult obesity medicine. But this is an effort being led by the Obesity Society, and we're going to be working with other professional organizations in the obesity space with the goal of really trying to elevate the care that patients are receiving when it comes to treatment of obesity. Our our field of obesity medicine has long been plagued with a lot of um, how can I say it, um, snake oils in the space where patients are being marketed lots of different treatments that are ineffective, that don't have any evidence base, that are even harmful. And it's really hard for the public to be able to sort that out and understand, well, this is really what is safe and evidence-based, and this is what 9 out of 10 clinicians who have training and in, in 
expertise in this space would say is an appropriate treatment strategy. We don't have that kind of guidance and document. We have great clinical guidelines, but they only go so far when it comes to actually helping at the point of care, especially when there are gaps in the evidence and we need expert opinion and consensus around those gaps in evidence to help us then guide the clinician at the point of care to make better decisions. We also see this as being a document for patients so that patients can start to advocate for the type of treatment that is consistent with the evidence. And they can also identify providers who are going to be practicing at that standard when they're thinking about who they want to seek out for obesity treatment. Dr. Ard, you're a physician. You like evidence-based medicine, but I have to be honest with you, our listeners appreciate what doctors call case reports or what we might call anecdotes. So I wonder if you could just share for our listeners some examples of how these medications have made a difference for some of the patients in your practice. Sure. So I can talk about any number of different patients who, over the course of time, as we treat obesity as a chronic disease, I've had several patients that I've worked with for years, and we cycle through different therapies with some success here or there. I can think of one of my first patients ever. She's a patient who actually had a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass many years ago, and never had a great treatment response to that surgery, as some people won't. Um, She was able to lose some weight, but certainly much less than what we would expect. Typically, we see about 30% weight loss with that type of procedure, and she got maybe 15% weight loss. And then over time, she gradually started regaining weight. And so at the time that I saw her, now seven years ago, eight years ago, she was gradually regaining weight and and didn't have any real explanation as to why. And so we started thinking through different strategies. We adjusted her nutrition. We started thinking about physical activity program, but we also started with pharmacotherapy and trying to think through what could we use as an adjunct to really try to see if we could help reset how her body was dealing with energy and, and allow her to more consistently lose weight. And we gradually got to a point where we were seeing some improvement in a combinate with using a combination of different therapies. But then this patient had a musculoskeletal disorder and it required the use of steroids. And you all know well what can happen when people are exposed to steroids. They often will gain a lot of weight, even if they don't change anything else that they're doing in terms of a lifestyle change. And so she experienced this, plus she was on some pain medication that was also causing um, some additional weight gain. And so despite all the things that we were trying, nothing was helping. And we were fortunate enough to be able to get her some semaglutide by that time. And even just at a low dose, we started to see really dramatic response. And it was it was just life altering for her because Again, this person's journey has been multiple years over a long period of time with comprehensive therapy. And, and, you know, we're just not seeing any real type of success. And with, you know, initiating that treatment of semaglutide at a low dose, even, she started to have dramatic response. And now she's maintaining her her lowest weight as an adult um, that is, you know, significantly lower, near normal BMI. And her health is dramatically improved, particularly as it relates to her physical function. So the musculoskeletal issues are now significantly improved, again, as a result of that treatment. So That's what I was wondering is, do her joints feel better now that she's carrying less absolutely. weight on them? Absolutely. Oh, that is definitely good news. You're listening to Dr. Jamie Ard. Professor of Epidemiology and Prevention at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He's also a clinical researcher focused on studying strategies to treat obesity and type 2 diabetes in adults. Dr. Ard is the Vice Dean for Clinical Research at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. He's also the President-Elect of the Obesity Society and will be the President in 2024. 
After the break, we'll explore the idea of a set point for weight. Dr. Ard has many patients who have experienced benefits on GLP-1 agonists. How does he counsel people who have terrible side effects like unbearable diarrhea? GLP-1 agonists are the latest medicines to treat obesity, but they're not the only ones. What else does Dr. Ard prescribe? One thing we worry about is the price tag for Wegovy or Ozempic or Manjaro. Will they make health inequity worse? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs dot com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health, made with a proven concentrated flavanol extract. More information is available at cocovia.com. Like Dr. Ard, we too have heard from many people that the GLP-1 agonists have worked surprisingly well to help them lose weight. That includes people who have struggled their whole lives with excess pounds, but Such drugs can cause serious side effects for some people. How do we balance benefits against risks? Our guest today is Dr. Jamie Ard. He's a professor of epidemiology and prevention at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. His research is on strategies to treat obesity and type 2 diabetes in adults. Dr. Ard also co-directs the Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Weight Management Center, where he oversees medical weight management programs. He's also the president-elect of the Obesity Society and will be president in 2024. Dr. Ard, I'd like to ask you a question about what has been referred to as the set point. And, Mm. And I have to tell you, I'm I'm a perfect example of the set point theory because after decades, my weight always comes back to 178 pounds. In other words, I can go up to 200 pounds. I can go down to 160 pounds, but I always end up back at 178. Now I may go up to 178.5 and I might mm-hmm. go down to 177.6, but but it's always right around 178. Why? What is it about my body that somehow <laughs> always returns to 178? And are there other examples like mine that suggest that there is some kind of set point thing that happens in our bodies or our brains? Yeah, so this this is a very hotly contested um, concept. And I think there are people in in both camps, people that adhere to the the set point theory and and people that really don't adhere to that. I am really kind of in the middle here because I think there's still some questions that are unanswered. Your perfect example, as you said, you you can modify or manipulate your weight in um, small epochs, right? So small periods of time, you can you know, push your weight down or you can push your weight up, but you tend to return back to that settling point, that plateau that seems to be your number, right? 178. If we gave you a jersey, that's what it would be. Right. But the 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 questions I have are for some people, there doesn't seem to be an upper bound on that set point, 
right? So some of my patients experience progressive weight gain over time. And there may be an inciting event. So it may be some weight retention after pregnancy and then menopause and then other things that progressively lead to additional weight gain. But there doesn't seem to be an upper bound per se in that set point. And the other question I have is, well, how long would you have to maintain at 200 pounds in order for that to become your new set point? Um, or how long would you have to maintain at 160 in order for that to become your new set point? And the last piece of that is, well, how much of the effect of the environment is is critical to that? So if I put you in an environment where most of your calories were coming from fast food and all that you ate was related to fast food and I changed your work schedule and said, you can only do your radio show and podcasts uh, on third shift, then what would happen to your set point, quote unquote? So I think there, there are still a number of unanswered questions, but we do know that there's a vigorous defense of body weight and that any perturbation of that leads to adaptations in the physiology such that your brain says, you know, if you're losing weight, I tell my patients this all the time, your brain doesn't know that you're doing this on purpose. When you start losing weight, it thinks that's a threat. It thinks you are in the middle of a famine because there's no natural reason in the wild. There's no other species of animals that is intentionally losing weight. We're the only ones that do that. And so our brains aren't wired to be able to allow us to do that. Uh, it sees that as a threat. We're not snowmen. We're not going to, we're not supposed to melt away. And you're going to then have a shift in hormones that promote weight regain or weight gain moving back to where you were previously. So that, that does support the idea that yes, there is some type of body weight that the brain defends and that, that may be a, a quote unquote set point. Dr. Ard, you have painted a very, I think, optimistic picture about the GLP-1 agonists, uh, the Ozempics, the Wegovies, the Monjaros. And, and I think that there are a lot of people who, after listening to our conversation, are going to say, well, sign me up. But we've also heard from some people who have described the digestive tract problems as abdominal apocalypse. That is to say the the nausea, the vomiting, the diarrhea are just daunting and don't always go away. What would you say to them? So I think what I would say is that what we want for our patients is for them to get the best treatment that makes the most sense for them as an individual. And while I'm certainly appreciative of the advancements in pharmacotherapy that we have for obesity and the increase in awareness that we have around the treatment of obesity as a result of that, I also remind people on a regular basis that we were treating obesity with the drugs that we had and, and those drugs can be very effective in the right situation for the right patient with appropriate adjunctive therapies. So just because Wagovi or Manjaro may not be for you or you can't get access to it doesn't mean that you have to forego treatment. I think that there are still other anti-obesity medications that in the right hands can be highly effective and we see that all the time in our practice. And I would say, actually, we were talking about this the other day. I, I don't think that the majority of our patients are actually on these medications. The majority of our patients are taking generic medications, taking previous generation anti-obesity medications, because those are the ones that are more accessible. And we are using in situations that are more complex, where people have previously failed something that is cheaper or where there's a very specific use case, um, like someone has type two diabetes and obesity, and we think we can, you know, sort of hit the two birds with one stone type of thing. That's where we're really concentrating our efforts. So we're, we're not abandoning any of the other drugs because those are still really highly effective. And if you have side effects with, 
one of the GLP ones, or or that's a problem in, in terms of a contraindication, then don't don't despair. Doctor Ard, what are those other drugs that are working for many of your patients? Sure. So there's a combination medication called uh, Qsimia, which is the brand name. It's a combination of fentramine and topiramate. We can actually use both fentramine and topiramate alone. And fentramine has an indication for obesity treatment, albeit short term, as the label suggests. But we in the obesity specialist world and certainly primary care providers who are adept at this can, you know, we'll use uh, fentramine long term. We actually have a large randomized trial that's ongoing now being run out of our center along with four other centers that's looking at the long term use of fentramine. It will actually be the first large uh, randomized trial of looking at fentramine use for more than a few months. And so we're actually following people for two years with that drug. But fentramine is, as people may recognize the name from FinFin, was part of FinFin combination. The fenfluramine component of that was the bad actor. Fentramine has still been around and has actually been the most prescribed anti-obesity medication that we have. And for a lot of people, it's a great starting point. It can be highly effective and it's inexpensive. The other medications include a combination called Contrave, that's a combination of naltrexone and bupropion. Uh, people may notice those or remember those names from bupropion is, is, is Wellbutrin or marketed as Wellbutrin. And naltrexone is used actually in the addiction space. And then you have uh, Saxenda or Loraglutide, which is really kind of one of the first GLP ones that was indicated for the treatment of obesity. It's a daily injection and can be a really good option for people who might have um, some more severe reaction side effects with the once weekly injections like like semaglutide and terzepatide. Loraglutide could be a good alternative because you can more finely adjust that dosing since it's on a daily basis rather than a once weekly basis. So those are some of the other medications that we will use on a much more regular basis in our patient populations. Dr. Ard, the new medications that we've been talking about are very pricey. And as a result, if people don't have super-duper insurance, if they're uninsured or underinsured, or if their insurance company just doesn't want to pay for it, they may not be able to get access to these medicines. We've already seen some significant inequities in who does have access. Do you envision any way to address this? I think there are several ways that we could address this. And I think it just, it will take political will, it will take combined advocacy efforts from patients and healthcare providers and other stakeholders. I, I think that increasing competition will be helpful in the marketplace. So as newer medications come to the market, which there are, are several in the pipeline that I think can change some of the dynamic. And, and so hopefully that lowers the cost. I think as we get better understanding of uptake usage, adoption of these medications, a lot of people get prescribed prescribed a medication, but a small percentage of them actually feel this, feel the medication and actually start to take it. So, you know, we, we know that there's some, some drop off there in terms of, you know, actual utilization. Um, but I also think that we need to really sort of look at the standards of care and how we actually practice in a cost effective way. So this is where one of the questions or one of the issues that we want to try to tackle in that standards of care that we talked about earlier in, in that if we were to say, well, everyone gets the newest medication independent of whether they've is the first time ever being treated or if they have severe disease or they just have a little bit of weight gain after pregnancy or whatever it is, we just, we, we assume everyone's going to get the most costly, most effective treatment. Well, we don't do that in any other disease state. So I think we have to be smart about how we do this in obesity, where we start with effective, but maybe less powerful treatment strategies that are at a lower cost. 
and people who don't get the response that we need, then we escalate their treatment to the next tier and so forth and so on. And so I think there's a lot of work that everyone can do to really kind of help make sure that we expand access to care and do it in a way that's equitable. Dr. Jamie Yard, thank you very much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy. Thank you. It has been such an honor to be a guest here. You've been listening to Dr. Jamie Ard, Professor of Epidemiology and Prevention at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He's also a clinical researcher focused on studying strategies to treat obesity and type 2 diabetes in adults. Dr. Ard co-directs the Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Weight Management Center, where he oversees the medical weight management programs. He's the Vice Dean for Clinical Research at the Wake Forest School of Medicine, and he's also the President-Elect of the Obesity Society and will be President in 2024. As you've just heard, Dr. Ard is quite enthusiastic about the potential for these new medicines to treat obesity. Not everyone is quite so optimistic. Next week, we will get a somewhat different perspective. Dr. Robert Lustig is a neuroendocrinologist and professor emeritus of pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. He has spent a lot of time treating obesity. Here's a taste of next week's interview with Dr. Lustig. People who are on Ozempic and Wagobi can lose up to 16% of their weight. And that is significant. And it's really the first time we've been able to do that. So again, I applaud these drugs. I'm not against them. However, let's think about what that 16% of weight loss is. When you stick people into the DEXA scanner to look at body composition analysis, you have lost as much muscle as you have fat. In other words, Ozempic and Wagovi and Manjaro are working by inducing starvation. In starvation, you lose equal amounts of fat and muscle. The goal is not to lose muscle. The goal is to lose fat. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we say exercise is to maintain your muscle, especially while you're losing weight. Ask any little old lady if she would like a little extra muscle just before she breaks her hip. And if you've read, you know, numerous uh, articles and reports, and if you read Peter Atiyah's book, Outlive, you will know that maintaining your muscle mass is extraordinarily important for longevity. Well, these drugs don't do it. These drugs actually make you lose muscle mass. This is not necessarily a good thing. So there's a little robbing Peter to pay Paul here. All right. You can't Uh, dissociate the satiety effect from the starvation effect and the starvation effect from the loss of muscle mass. That's not great. That was Dr. Robert Lustig. He is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He specializes in the field of neuroendocrinology with an emphasis on the regulation of energy balance by the central nervous system. His research and clinical practice has focused on childhood obesity and diabetes. Dr. Lustig is the author of several books, including his most recent, Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. You may also be interested in his previous books, Fat Chance and The Fat Chance Cookbook, as well as The Hacking of the American Mind. His website is robertlustig.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the rest of the lowdown on the new medicines for treating obesity. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a special blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. It supports five areas of brain performance all in one capsule. More information is available at cocovia.com.
C-O-C-O-A-V-I-A.com. Today's show is number 1,361. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also have access to information about our weekly podcast. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.